2,750 years ago, God called the prophet Micah. And when he called the prophet Micah, he had a tremendous job for him to do. And I know that some of you are thinking, 2,750 years ago, what lesson can that have for us today? What could a man, speaking that many years ago, know about problems of people who have the Internet, people who have college educations, people who are sophisticated and drive automobiles? Those people lived back during a period of time of dark ages. Well, if you'll give me a few minutes of your time, I believe that by the time we end, you will say, Was Micah living in the 21st century, A.D.? As we begin, as you think about the prophets, some of them were given jobs to go to people of prominence, to kings and those who were in power. Isaiah was one of those men. On the other hand, some of them were sent to your ordinary, plain, average person. Micah was one of those. He was chosen to go and speak to God's people. But don't get the idea that Micah was somehow lesser of a prophet. Don't get the idea that Micah didn't have courage and conviction and stand strong. In chapter 3 and verse 8, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. You see, he was a man who had no problem standing and facing a crowd and saying, this is what God says are our problems and how they need to be addressed. He has three major messages. And Lord willing, what you and I will do over the next three Sundays is to look at those three messages. Chapters 1 through 3, he will talk about the retribution of God and why it is deserved. Then when we get to chapters 4 and 5, he will talk about the restoration of God's people. And then finally, in chapters 6 and 7, he will talk about repentance that needs to be addressed among the people. But now let me introduce this lesson. The people need to be punished. They deserve to be punished. Have you ever done something and when you got through, you were punished for it and you know I needed that. I deserved that. I did what I should not have done. Every aspect of these people, there was something wrong. And as you look at chapters 1 through 3, I'm going to, I want to really just survey with you chapters 1 through 3. And here's the three things that Micah is going to address. He's going to address the political situation. And I know some of you may be saying, oh, no, you're not going to talk about politics, are you? Number two, he is going to address the social problems that they are engaged in. And then finally, he is going to address their religious problems. Let's begin, first of all, with this idea of the political situation. And I know some of you are saying, you're certainly not going to talk about politics. Because politics today is considered to be off limits when it comes to 
religious matters. But in the Bible, it wasn't. In fact, if you read your Bibles very carefully, God addresses the kings. He addresses the people. Now, we're not talking about partisan discussions here. We're not going to talk about political parties. We're going to talk about nations and peoples as they relate to one another. You see, God judged rulers. He judged the citizens by the moral behavior that they had. I want to tell you that as you start out the book of Micah, he's going to tell us about three kings. And if you want to follow along with me, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to go through chapters 1 through 3 very briefly this morning. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, I will tell you that we're going to look at the three kings just briefly. But you have to understand, he is from the area of Moresheth, which is over near the Philistine cities of Gath. And he is speaking with regards to Samaria, which is the northern kingdom's capital city, and Jerusalem, which is Judah's capital city. We might as well say today this was his message to Washington, D.C. and to Moscow or Tehran or Jerusalem. You see, God does have a message to the rulers. Jotham was a pretty good king. He was partly good, partly bad, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about him. To follow him was a man by the name of Ahaz, and he was awful. He was a wicked man. He was a ruler. If I go to 2 Kings chapter 16, you look at verses 2 through 4, it tells you that he was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem until he's 36. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God. You drop down to verse 3. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Folks, he was a man who didn't care about his children. Made them pass through the fire. That referenced the killing that took place, the sacrifice of his own children. He also was a man who idolatry was not a problem for. And yet, here's a man supposed to be leading God's people. But let me bring you further to a man by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. In fact, if you go to chapter 18, verse 3, it says he did what was right in the eyes or the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Drop down to verse 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him of all the kings of Judah nor who were before him for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from him but kept his commandments. You see, he's a good man. It was during those days that you have Micah prophesying. So you say, well, what's the political problem? You see, it's a period of turmoil, a period of change. It's a period of upheaval that's going on politically, socially, religiously. 
And when you start looking at the interaction, then you begin to see, oh, now this starts making some sense. Because Assyria was a rising power. And I know today Assyria is not a, a concern of ours. Think, for instance, if you will, about some nations years ago that were almost no power at all. And you think about how they've risen to power, like China. Or think about as the Soviet Union began to disintegrate, everybody thought that the countries that were there would fall into nothingness. But look at the rise of Russia again. I'd suggest to you, as you're studying through and you're reading about Micah, you have to realize that Assyria is arising. But Egypt, on the other hand, is declining. But here's the problem. You see, they had a political connection to Egypt. Isaiah, the parallel prophet, in chapter 30, verses 2 and 3, who walked to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. You see, what's going on politically is the people are not asking what God thinks on anything, they're going down to Egypt and asking, what does Egypt think? What is Egypt's advice? He said, the trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. Go to chapter 31 of Isaiah. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because there are many and horsemen because they're very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Now you start seeing there is a political problem. As a nation, as a people, they're not trusting God, they're trusting in themselves. As a result, the northern kingdom, Samaria, fell in 722 B.C. That's found in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to have to move along because I've got a lot to say, so you're just going to have to read it. It's there in the text. But you see that Micah is really focused on the southern kingdom. He's focused on Judah for the most part. And here's what's going on in Judah. Hezekiah is the king, and the northern kingdom has fallen, and the leader of Assyria, Sennacherib, is parked right at the front door of Jerusalem. And here's what his message is. I'm going to destroy you just like I've destroyed everybody else. If you go with me and you look in 2 Kings 18, verses 13 through 16, you'll find Hezekiah scared to death. In fact, he's so scared, he's saying, tell me what I've got to do to pay you off so you'll leave me alone. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria, Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasury of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold off the doors of the temple of the Lord. 
and from the pillars that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave them to the king of Assyria. Hezekiah paid him off. You see, there's a threat against God's people, and it's almost like you've been depending on Egypt. Now you know you can't depend on Egypt. Now the king of Assyria is sitting at your door, and you're going to say, okay, I've got to pay him off. But you know what's the problem with paying people off extortion? Pretty soon you run out of money. Pretty soon you run out of resources, and they'll say, no longer do I want what you have, I want you too. You see, you keep going to chapter 19. And here the Rebshekah, the, the leader of the Assyrian army, is camped out right in front and saying, Hezekiah, what do you think you're doing? You will not rebel against us. We will run you over. And it says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you, God, you alone of all the kings of the earth, you have made the heavens and the earth. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Israel, I have heard. Drop down to verse 35. And the angel of the Lord went out that night and killed 185,000 of the army of the Assyrians, and they took tail and went home. You want me to tell you something? You look back and you see the first thing is Hezekiah tried to placate. He paid them off. That didn't work. Second thing he did, he prayed, and that worked. You want me to tell you something, how this applies to us today? All the names of the nations change. The politics, the, the rulers change. But you know what doesn't change? You put your dependence upon man, any man, any nation, and you will be disappointed. You put your trust in God and you pray to God. And God can answer and make things happen just as relevant today as it was 2,750 years ago. Well, now let's move to the social ills. Because the social ills were just about the same as today. And you say, well, are you sure? Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to chapter 2 and let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Micah. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. First thing that you'll notice is something's going on. There are people who are mulling over in their minds as they lie upon their beds. You know what? Here's another scheme how I can get people's money. In the book of Psalms, chapter 36, 
He's talking about the transgression of the wicked, verse 1. Look at verse 4. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Here's a man who's thinking every night as he's lying upon his bed, what else can I do? How can I get some money from this person over here? How can I scam them out of their inheritance? Today there are people who are at this very hour thinking of schemes to steal your money, your life saving. And they prey upon the most vulnerable of society. Here's an elderly man or an elderly woman sitting at their home and they get a phone call and the phone call says, this is the Internal Revenue Service. You owe us $10,000, $25,000. Oh, I do? I didn't know that. My accountant didn't tell. Oh, yes, and you've got to pay today. If you don't, we're coming after you. And so they say, well, what have I got to do? Give me your bank account number. And they steal a person's life saving. You don't tell me that this is not exactly what was taking place back then. They saw a person's house. They said, we can take it. We'll take it. They covet what others have worked for. They don't want to work for it. I could give you example after example, but I want to tell you one that really, I guess you'd say, touches your heart. In Oregon, there's a couple they believe in the biblical principles of marriage. Two lesbians came into their business and said, we want you to bake us a wedding cake. And they said, sorry, we can't do a wedding cake. We'll, give you, we'll sell you a cake, but we don't want to do a wedding cake because that violates our Christian principles. Well, if you don't do it, we're going to sue you. And they did. These two lesbian women sued this couple and got a judgment for $135,000 against them. And because of the state officials of Oregon decided they wanted to push it, they're willing to take the home and everything these people have because they wouldn't bake a cake based upon their biblical principles. Here's people going to get $135,000. They didn't work for it, which they definitely do not deserve. But laws make it possible to take something from someone today legally and steal a person's inheritance. Let me tell you a second thing. Go down with me in chapter 2. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Are, those, are these his doings? Do not my words do good to those who walk uprightly? Now, the word prattle and the word prophesy are the same Hebrew word. But this is not your normal word for prophesy or even the word for preach. This is a word which means to drip or to foam at the mouth. It's a derogatory term. Now I want you to imagine, maybe a little comical for you, 
As you try to talk about somebody who preaches, that preacher just gets so angry he foams at the mouth. Or he just keeps going on and on and on, just like a drip of a faucet, drip, drip, drip. You see how annoying that is? You see what they're doing is here, they are telling the preachers, the prophets, we don't want to hear what you've got to say. Is that not exactly what's being done today? Oh, you folks, you go down there to that little church building of yours and you talk all you want to in that little... But don't you get out socially. Don't you get on Facebook. Don't you get on anywhere and start preaching your system of morality. You're being told it doesn't apply. It's not the only prophet who heard that. Amos chapter 7. Verses 12 and 13. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread, there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it's the royal residence. We don't want you here, folks. Or maybe a little more direct, as you get to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10, who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. We don't want your message of confrontation. We don't want you to tell us that what you're doing is sin. If you want to talk to us, make it so generic, so nondescript that none of us would ever be offended by anything that you have to say. But there was a type of prophet that they did want. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be a prattler of this people. Oh, you want a prophet that would be popular? Talk about the one who has no problem with the wine, who has no problem with the drink. You go stand before the board of mayor and alderman and say, Hey, I, I'm, I'm here as a preacher to tell you, I'm all for the liquor. You know what they'd say? Oh, good. You're the preacher we've been looking for. You're welcome here. Folks, how different was 2,750 years ago to today? Verse 7 is difficult to translate into English. I looked at all the major translations, and the New American Standard of 1995 is probably the most accurate, or at least the best at conveying the idea of the original words. And I want you to listen to it because it also says something to the modern society. It is being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Notice very carefully, is it being said, O house of Jacob? We're not talking about what God says. We're talking about what the people say. And what are they saying? Is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Or would you put it in the positive way, 
God's just real patient with us. They had a warped view of God that God's patience was inexhaustible. You know, I, I think I'm a fairly patient person when people say something mean or unkind. But you know what? You can say it long enough after a while, I'm going to get upset. Do you realize that the patience of God is long-suffering? In fact, the patience of God waited during the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. But don't make a mistake. The flood came. These people think God will just put up with and tolerate anything and everything out of them. That's similar to the modern idea of once saved, always saved. In other words, God can say, don't do this, don't do that, and it doesn't matter. Or socially, in the greater context of our society, you know what the one word that everybody has seemed like has learned from the Bible is Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. They believe that God is not a judging God and we ought not be a judging people and that anything and everything, that you can't exhaust the patience of God. Now tell me that 2,750 years ago is not current today. They ripped people off. Verses 8 and 9. Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by like men return from war. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children you have taken away my glory forever. I want you to imagine, here's a person walking by. He has on one of those robes, you know, the kind like we wear at Vacation Bible School that goes around and a guy reaches to the back collar of it and he yanks off not only the robe, the outer garment, but he yanks off the inner garment as well. Just like a soldier who sees people passing by and he's going to take his own spoils of war. But these are from people you trust. These are unsuspecting passers-by. What they were doing, they were ripping off their neighbors, their friends. He says, you took homes, the pleasant homes, from the women and from the children. I presume because no man is mentioned here, he's talking about the widows and the orphans. You know, in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 12, verse 40, Jesus talked about the Pharisees. He says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation Surely no one would ever take advantage of a widow. Really? Surely no one would try to profit from an orphan. You go find out how many people who are involved in foster care, not for the concern for the children, but for the money they get out of it. Listen to Micah 3, 2 and 3. You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh for the cauldron. You're skinning my people. You're ripping them off. Very quickly now, 
the third part, the religious. You see, we've seen the political scene, what's going on. We've seen the social scene. Now let's look at the religious scene. And I, I want you to look at the prophets. These are the men whose role it is to deliver God's message to the people. That ought to be fairly simple. God said it. I present it. God inspired it. I deliver God's message. That ought not be too difficult. Go with me to chapter 3. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall cover their lips, for there's no answer from God. It's almost like God's message is a light, but it's grown dark for them. You see, one of the big problems is they're leading the people astray by crying the word peace. Now, you jump ahead 150 years to the time of Ezekiel, and you still have people doing that, saying peace, Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 10, Indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying peace, when there is no peace, Telling everybody that everything is okay. Is it all right for me to walk in the pulpit today and say, don't worry about sin. There's no problem with sin with us here. Don't even pay any attention to it. Everything's okay. Is that all right? Not if God says it's not all right. You see, the prophets weren't doing their job. They were saying what the people wanted said. Paul spoke about such people in the first century. In Romans 16, verse 18, For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by their smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. You see, what they're doing, they're out there serving themselves, their own bellies. They're not interested in the people. In fact, what they do is they use a very subtle and yet very slick way of taking people in. Why do they do that? They're motivated by greed. Money. Let's go to chapter 3 and look at verses 9 through 11. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Now listen carefully to verse 11. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. Her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, 
Is not the Lord among us? No evil can come upon us. Don't worry. Your prophets are going to tell you everything is fine. Don't worry about what God has said. You know, when Paul wrote the young preacher Timothy, one of the points he tried to drill into him, Timothy, you've got to understand this, he said there's the useless wrangling of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourselves. And he goes down to verse 10 and he says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, Timothy, don't allow yourself to be tempted to telling people what they want to hear because they'll pay you for it. Now let's bring it all to a conclusion here. Israel was gone. 722, she fell to Assyria. Judah is on her way out. Unless something changes, God has warned of a path of self-destruction. You stay on this path, you know where it's going to lead. Look and see what happened to Israel. There's what's going to happen to you, Judah. You still can turn things around if you will. Folks, listen to me. Israel fell. Judah fell. Nations have come. Nations have gone. People have come. People has gone. But let me tell you, if your life is not right with God right now, you're on your way to destruction. You're on your way to punishment. And you know what? As I began this, these three chapters is about retaliation because retribution. We deserve it. We deserve it. What's a believer to do in a time of turmoil? Hold to God's unchanging hand. If you're not a Christian this morning, we want to encourage you and invite you to respond to the Lord's invitation through your faith in Him, confessing your sins and repentance to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you are here as a child of God, looking at your life and seeing the path that you're on is not the right one, God calls you home. Would you come while we stand and sing?